Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about fan campaigns to save blockbuster franchises. You may have noticed uh, on social media that in the wake of Zack Snyder's Justice League, there is now the fan campaign to hashtag restore the Snyderverse. As no one could have foreseen, if you give these people what they want and answer their release the Snyder cut, they'll move on to a new thing. And apparently the new thing is restore the Snyderverse. And you can't say, well, that will never happen because we all said, well, the Snyder cut will never happen. And it what and under those circumstances, it didn't. Like if if you had told me, yeah, there's going to be a pandemic and then HBO is going to launch a streaming service and they're going to be hard up for content then yeah, that's a scenario where that could happen. But if you're talking under normalcy, where it's like a studio has their own slate of movies and Zack Snyder felt burned by his relationship with Warner Brothers, do you really think he wants to go back and do more? And like, well, you know, I had my vision taken away from me once before, but I'm sure it won't happen this time. (laughs) I don't know. It doesn't seem like a particularly good deal for Zack Snyder. But then... In the wake of Kong uh, or Godzilla versus Kong, uh, con- continue the MonsterVerse started trending, and then this past weekend there was uh, was it like restore the Batfleck or make the Batfleck movie? Basically, mm-hmm. where's Ben Affleck's Batman? Well before we even know what Matt Reeves' Batman will be, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it's a weird thing, and I just I guess you know it's worth talking about because it speaks to a kind of dissatisfaction, but in a way that is in favor of blockbuster entertainment in a way we haven't really seen before because these fan campaigns aren't new. I mean, you had, there was, you know, the Veronica Mars campaign, uh, other countless other TV shows, you know, save our show. And, uh, and this was before social media, you know, they would try to save their shows by writing into the network and showing that there was a devoted fan base that, that cared and sending these, them marshmallows. Right. Exactly. Like there'd be a way to show uh, a network that there was an audience that should be serviced and that could, you that would may not be the biggest audience, but was a devoted audience. And that, the fact that there was a devoted audience became more important as TV became more fragmented. And it wasn't all about just, you know, networks knew that the days of 40 million people tuning in to one of three networks were well over. So it would, it was better to have a particular audience than hoping for the biggest audience. And so there was, there was hope there, but now it's weird to sort of see it, that sort of fan campaigning take hold for, uh, blockbusters and say what you will it's 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 weird about the Snyder Cut because it sort of has this cult movie mentality because of the sort of the fan campaign to even you know hashtag release the Snyder Cut but also the weird idiosyncrasies of Zack Snyder's work to begin with and yet I I kind of bristle when I when the notion of justice league as a cult film when it was never intended to be that and you know to call it a cult film really i think is an insult to actual cult film sort of weird movies that 
were never meant to have mass appeal or not even meant to have mass appeal, but something that was sort of idiosyncratic and daring. And I think Justice League is kind of that, but also kind of not. I don't know. I have a lot of conflicting feelings on it and I'm <laughs> rambling now. Adam, what do you think? I want to restore the Snyderverse is what I uh, mm. No, <laughs> <It was just laughs> what a turn this would take. Uh, it's it's weird. It, 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 just to kind of like, so to contrast it with like the television audiences of wanting to, you know, wanting to can, continue those shows. This is something you and I noticed at Comic-Con is that, you know, panels for TV shows, the fans were far more rabid than a panel for um, Pacific Rim or even something like The Hobbit. Because with TV shows, people sit with those characters week after week after week, and they feel like they know them. And this is why a bunch of TV actors, you know, get accosted on the street and also get, you know, uh, people get upset when they're not their character because you've spent so much time with them. You feel like they're part of your family. Um, and I can empathize with that. You know, I, I was binge watching Friends all through high school and college over and over and over again. And it felt like hanging out with my friends whenever I watched that show. Um, so it's weird to see so it's understandable that those fans would want to see those shows continue and sometimes those fan campaigns worked sometimes they didn't um you know even as recently as brooklyn 99 the the whole save brooklyn 99 thing um when fox canceled that show it got picked up by nbc uh, you know ultimately money talks and ratings talk the the show is heading towards its final season now it was effectively ended i don't know how uh conscious a choice that was on the showrunners but now i'm rambling and div uh, divulging um but it's so contrasted that with like you know restore the snyderverse we've seen what man of steel and batman versus superman are like the two big Zack snyder movies and and then of course Zack snyder's justice league it's weird i, I think godzilla versus kong is even weirder because it's not even like there are any human characters to continue there <laughs> it's just the two big monsters uh fighting each other um but I don't know, to me, it's it's kind of emblematic of this whole on-demand culture. Not to sound like an old person, um, but when you and I were growing up, if you wanted to watch ER, you had to be in front of your television on Thursday at nine o'clock, or you had to have a VCR that you could record it on a tape. That was that. You saw it or you missed it. Um, you know, we've talked ad nauseum about how like everything is on demand these days uh through streaming services cable you can literally pull up pretty much any movie and watch it right now if you want you don't have to drive to blockbuster and hope that they have it in stock you don't have to track it down on uh you know even on amazon or ebay or something like that uh for the most part um so you could watch most of these blockbusters on TNT or TBS every single weekend. They're showing, uh, you know, Marvel movies or um, these DC movies on, on those cable networks. So I think it's more emblematic of like, I always watch what I want to watch. I never have to sit through commercials. I never have to, um, you know, just kind of half watch something while I'm waiting for something else to start. So part of me thinks that it's, it's just kind of a symptom of that, of, of like, are you saying I'm not going to get what I want? Like, I don't get to watch more of what I want to see. Um, so I don't know. And that regard, just, it's just very strange to me because there, you know, there have been plenty of films I've seen that I would have liked to have seen a sequel to um, Pacific Rim being one of them. Um, but I wanted to see Guillermo del Toro sequel, not the Stephen tonight sequel. Although maybe that's a, uh, an example of be careful what you wish for. Um, even something like John Carter, uh, you know, I was pretty bummed that I didn't get to see any more stories in that world. But 
I don't know. I never felt like they were owed to me. And especially on a blockbuster scale, when you're playing with 200, $250 million budgets, you know, multiply that by one and a half to get the actual cost of the film. If you include marketing and P and a, these are massive investments uh, on an IP scale from a studio. So it's just an odd thing to like go on Twitter and demand it, especially seeing what we've seen come out about it. Um, you know, I, I think it was in the interview with Chris Terrio uh, where he was talking about executives telling him, or maybe it was like shareholders or something from Warner Brothers or AT&T. Yeah, they were saying like, you know, what if the head of AT&T has a son or a daughter and they- Oh, that was in the, that was in the Ray Fisher story that like you have to- Yeah, that's right. You have to say, you have to say booyah. Yeah. Because if you don't say booyah and there's a kid who belongs to a powerful exec, I could lose my job. (laughs) And that is, that is how these blockbusters are made. Like that is the, you know, part and parcel for the most part, that is how these blockbusters are made. Unless you are Marvel Studios and you have someone like Kevin Feige who has such a proven track record that he has room to, um, have more creative expression and allow filmmakers to get a little bit weird with it, like Taika Waititi and Ryan Coogler. But even then that had to be earned. Well, not just that, but even then you're working within like a Marvel box. Mm -hmm. And the question is, is how, how liberated do you feel in that box? Do you feel like you can tell the story you want to tell knowing that, you know, we have all the, you know, your film is going to have set pieces, A, B, C, and D, and that the character arc has to go from here to here because we have these things planned are you willing to work within that? Um, are you willing to shoot a lot of coverage? Are you willing to do certain things? And some filmmakers are like, yes, I can make that trade because I will ultimately get to do something I want to do and they're going to do something they want to do. So for someone like Chloe Zhao, she feels like that's a good trade-off for her to do Eternals, that that works. But Ava DuVernay was like, you know what? That I don't have anything against Marvel, but that's not the system that I want to work in. So even there you know, the blockbuster system is, is, is different. Yeah. And I don't, it's just so more than anything, just so weird to me. Like, you know, after mission impossible rogue nation, you know, there was no confirmed next sequel uh, right after that, or even maybe ghost protocol. Um, And I love that franchise, but you did, there weren't like campaigns of like, you must give us another one right now. Like, no, sometimes Tom Cruise goes off and does other things. Right. Sometimes they wait around for another director. Sometimes the movie falls apart. I mean, God, David Fincher was supposed to direct Mission Impossible 3 and then left the project pretty deep into it. And there wasn't like a, you know, restore David Fincher to the Mission Impossible franchise. (laughs) And he's one of the, you know, biggest filmmakers around. So I have to think this is a consequence of the internet and social media. Yeah. I also feel like there is an element of teaser culture at play. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you mentioned Comic-Con because that reminded me of a story of another story when we were at Comic-Con and we were, so when we were at Comic-Con, you'd have to just sit in Hall H all day because you, you can't leave. If you leave, you lose your seat and go back, you go to the end of the line. So like you come in at the beginning of the day and you're just there Yeah, and we'd have to be there all day. So, and the reason we're there all day is because the last panel of the day would be Marvel. And you're like, well, you got to report on Marvel. So this is my long-winded way of saying like, the reason we were at the panel for Sin City 2 <laughs> was not because we wanted, we gave a shit about Sin City 2, but because we were there for Marvel. But during the panel for Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, 
someone is maybe it was Frank Miller or maybe it was Robert Rodriguez made an offhand comments like, yeah, well, you know, we might have, we have an idea for Sin City three and the audience went, Ooh, and that, by the way, <laughs> Sin City two flopped. No one gave a shit. <laughs> and this, yeah, and no one Sin City it. two was a, not a fan demanded, but there was a very strong, like give us Sin City two mentality. Right. Yeah, there was this note like we have to do more adaptations of these Sin City comics. And they got it. And I mean, now again, that's not an expensive thing because Robert Rodriguez can make his movies for a song. I mean, he has built his reputation on being able to make movies that look better than they cost. Yeah. But even there, this notion that like, oh, I need the next part of this story. And it's weird. It's almost like people are now viewing movies as television and i think mm-hmm. you know going back to marvel that has something you know they're they they bear some responsibility for that but i guess this notion of like you know restore the snyder verse is this concept of you know Zack snyder had a story and the only way that story can be told and the only story worth telling is one where you hearken back to his original vision which he kind of laid out on social media, like all the story, not, not even like, I mean, they weren't storyboards. They were more like whiteboards with plot points on them mm-hmm. in terms yeah, of like it was all he, mapped out. It was at like a, an exhibit in like Dallas or something. You yeah. It was basically like, here's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And it's, you know, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I guess it's a bummer that he won't get to do that, but I don't know. I guess it's just like, I'm, I've sort of, acclimated to you know sometimes filmmakers don't get to do the things they want to do and sometimes you should also be careful what you wish for yeah <laughs> this note and all and 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 then and just another corollary to that sometimes the best movies you get are the ones you weren't expecting that's the other part of it like this notion that the fans are always right is i'm trying to think when that's been borne out <laughs> I, I'm really struggling when really like to me, the success stories are the ones about filmmakers who gambled and they were able to express their vision in such a way that was unexpected. And yet it gave the audience something they didn't know they wanted. So for instance, if you, if I take you back to 2010 and say, Hey, do you want a fourth Mad Max movie with Charlie's Theron and Tom Hardy? I don't know. I mean, the previous, the last Mad Max film was in the 1980s. It was beyond Thunderdome. And so it's not like the story had, you know, really done anything, but people would be like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> and like Mad Max sure. Fury Road is amazing, but people didn't yeah. know that they wanted it. Yeah. And so I'm like, while I'm like, you know, psyched for Mad Max, what Furiosa, I guess is the, mm-hmm. the title. You know, I'm also really excited for just that in that movie that um, George Miller is going to do with Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. What three thousand years? Three thousand years of longing, I think. Of longing, yeah. Because I don't know what that movie is, but I'm more yeah. excited by something I don't know than something that's like comforting. I guess. I, I guess it's sort of like if you told me tomorrow, like we're done making Marvel movies, like the MCU has ended. I'd be a little bummed, but I'd get over it. I don't know if I'd start a fan campaign to be like, restore the MCU. Like we got over a decade of it. It's great that it's continuing, but you know, (laughs) these days we're not exactly hard up for entertainment. Yeah. 
Well, that's what I mean is you can watch anything. And there's, <laughs> I mean, there's a century's worth of movies out there. Um, I guess almost um, of movies out there to watch. Like there are so many movies you have never seen. Um, so I guess just the idea of like, no, 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 I demand more of this specific thing is strange. And I do think Marvel is is partly to blame for it because at this point, and it wasn't always the case, but at this point, you know, they make so much money. We're guaranteed to continue the story. You know, the story is going to keep going. You may not like every episode, you know, Captain Marvel may not be great, but you're going to stick around and watch the next one. Um, and you're excited by the teases of like, Ooh, what's secret invasion going to be like? And um, you know, Ooh, Taika Waititi's back for Thor four. I wonder what that looks like. Uh, and these are exciting things. Um, but I don't know. I, I think there's a degree of, uh, like we just know that we're getting more of those, um, but that's not the case over at Warner Brothers and, and DC and the Marvel movies. Are the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the most consistently successful franchise ever made. I think, um, you know, Star Wars is maybe more popular, but it not you know it's hit and miss in terms of like what's good and what's bad, uh, what people loved, what people didn't love. Um, but pound for pound, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think, is just it's just going to keep going and there's going to be a level of quality that you get there. Um, and, and there is going to, and, and to that point though, there's also going to be a level of quality that you rarely exceed. I mean, we were talking, yeah. I was talking, we were talking in Slack and, you know, a couple of our colleagues, Greg, Greg Smith and Tom Ryman, uh, you know, they pointed out, you know, these movies don't, Marvel movies don't really demand a rewatch that no. much. And for my money, I like having them on in the background but if I were like, I could count on probably one hand, the number of great Marvel movies, the number yeah. of movies that are like, not only am I like, I'm not just popping this on to have in the background while I'm on my phone. I'm watching, I have like what I'm putting on Guardians of the Galaxy volume two, I'm watching it because I actually think it's emotionally interesting and has something worthwhile to say about found family. Like, I think it actually is a very good movie, not just good for Marvel, but a good movie. And, but you know, I would say something like the Ant-Man movies are the definition of like, put it on TNT and just, you know, while you're just working and you're on something in the background, <laughs> like it doesn't, those Ant-Man movies don't really demand your attention in any way. And that's not a slam against Peyton Reed or the cast or anything like that. They're just, they don't make demands of you in that way. And at some level you have to sort of be like that's sort of their form and function. Whereas Kevin Feige is sort of like, he's not going to be like, Marvel is now all about the artists. He's going to say, okay, we'll get, you know, Chloe Zhao on Eternals and we'll have Ryan Panther, but we're also going to get John Watts to do Fantastic Four. And I don't think John, like John Watts is going to get the job done. Do I, he's probably good with actors. He, you know, works well within the system, but he's not going to upend anything in a way that would challenge anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what makes the restore the Snyderverse thing somewhat exciting because Zack Snyder is a filmmaker who, you know, looking at the Snyder cut is a bit more ambitious and, and did take some pretty significant leaps. I don't think all of those leaps worked. Um, but I mean, we talked about this ad nauseum on our Snyder cut podcast, but you know, uh, for better and worse, that movie is entirely Zack Snyder, but I don't think the, you know, I think that the reason this kind of all goes back to like release the Snyder cut, the release the Snyder cut movement. And, you know, we'll probably get added on Twitter for this. 
because people continue. You can have me all you want, people. I have quality filters on. I don't see it. (laughs) I don't. I don't see what you're saying. Well, people people like to bring up an article I wrote a few years ago um, saying I would like to see the Snyder Cut and here's why it won't happen. And I stand by that. It didn't make any financial sense for Warner Brothers to finish a movie, which, you know, to finish the Snyder Cut, they invested like 70 to $80 million in it to finish all of those visual effects, which we knew at the time it was unfinished. And a lot of people were like, no, 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 they could release it just now. Um, And Zack Snyder himself has even said, no, it was not finished. And they wanted me to release the rough cut with no music and temporary effects. And I didn't want to do that. Um, It didn't make financial sense to to release a new cut of a movie that audiences rejected into theaters because it costs money to put that movie into theaters. It costs money to market it again. The entire reason that the Snyder Cut exists, yes, is partly because of the fan campaign, but more importantly is because HBO Max needed content. Right. Uh, you know, streaming is the future. You look at all of these, uh, all of these major conglomerates and major companies, they are pushing everyone to their streaming services. We talked about this last week with Black Widow. The whole reason that it's going in theaters and on Disney Plus with Premier Access is because they want more subscribers. So here, HBO Max, which is who Zack Snyder worked directly with on the Snyder Cut, um, they wanted something that would gain subscribers. And I think they succeeded incredibly well. It was a really smart move uh, for them to finish that movie and put it on HBO Max. But it wasn't, you know, I think... uh, I think fans are getting greedy in terms of like, all right, I got the thing that I just spent the last four years yelling for. It's not enough. Give me mm-hmm. more. And I, I think it's the, you know, it's just as unlikely that they would bring Zack Snyder back to direct justice league two. And you know what? I can't well, and also it's just, it's, and... it's clearly just not in their plans and it's not no. in Zack Snyder's plans. I mean, Zack Snyder has been like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. And you know, rightly so. I mean, considering if you look at it from his perspective, he was probably not treated particularly well on, you know, Justice League. He no. was, you know, and, and so why would you go back to that? Especially he when that in his life. he doesn't need it in his life. And clearly with Army of the Dead coming up, you have a company like Netflix that's willing to just shower him with money and creative freedom to do whatever he wants. And that movie looks like a lot of fun. I would much rather watch Army of the Dead than see Justice League 2. Which and right. also he's already mapped out all of his plans, so like you know what the movie is, right? There, where'd be the surprise value? And then, furthermore, you know, Warner, you have to keep in mind that Warner Brothers is already has a new trajectory for the DC EU. I guess <laughs> whatever it is, it is. Whatever which I think is. Is, is a mistake. But they're pivoting back towards interconnectivity. They're pivoting back towards interconnectivity, but within, but with the with the flexibility to to discard it whenever they want. So the idea is that Flashpoint ties everything together um, or the Flash movie, whatever they call it. Maybe it's just the Flash. Um, So that ties everything together, but then you don't like, you can release the Batman and it doesn't affect anything. (laughs) Also, you look at that schedule, that calendar of like all of the movies that Warner Brothers has in the works. What is the, what is the one that you are most looking forward to? Because I know top far and away of my list is the Batman. Right. And that's an entirely new take from a new filmmaker with new actors, not connect, not tied down by interconnectivity or being, you know, part three of a six part story that's told across various feature films. And that's, you know, I've written editorials about this. This is what Warner Brothers should be doing because this is what Marvel cannot do because every Marvel movie has to have that connectivity. They can be distinct and distinguishable. Um, You know, I think Black Panther is, in my opinion, the best Marvel movie they've made. 
And I think it's one of the, the most standalone, but it also had to fit inside a narrative being told inside the MCU. Um, and so had to acknowledge events that happened before it and that would happen after it. Yeah, uh, it's a box and the box and, can, yeah. And aesthetically, it, yeah, you're right. It's a box. Aesthetically, it had to fit inside, um, you know, what a Marvel movie is supposed to look like because we know what that universe looks like. Conversely, the Batman can do whatever the hell it wants because it's not connected to anything. So I, yeah, that's why I'm just so confused. Cause I'm like, why do you, I mean, we've, we've had man of steel, Batman versus Superman, two justice leagues, Aquaman, wonder woman, which all, you know, in some form or another connect to one another and, and take place inside the same universe. All, oh, and two wonder woman movies. I completely forgot there was a sequel, which I guess says a lot about that sequel. Um, but I don't know. It gave me new stuff. I, I just I just don't really understand wanting or demanding that Zack Snyder come back and slave away for another God, it would be Justice League two and three. That would be at least four or five years of his life. Um I just don't understand it. <laughs> when you look at Army of the Dead, that that at least looks like something fresh and different and new that he's doing. Yeah, it's almost like I'm a fan of Zack Snyder, but only as if he makes DC superhero movies, which is a yeah. weird sort of, you know, frame to put him in. Like, I don't, I, I, I think Black Panther is great, but I would be mortified if the only thing Ryan Coogler could do for the rest of his career is Black Panther movies, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? I, and then I say that as someone who's, who really wants to see Wrong Answer, the movie mm -hmm. that he's doing with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates on the Atlanta school's cheating scandal. Yeah. So this, this notion of just like, but only make the superhero movies just seems very constricting and, and honestly, anti-artist. Um, at some point you have to respect what they want to do as an individual and not just see them <clears throat> as a cog in a machine to create blockbuster content. To that end, the whole Batfleck thing just <clears throat> confounded me. <laughs> Because I was like, man, here's a guy who's been through a lot and who, you know, by public admission, taking on the Batman role somewhat led him into a bit of a spiral. You know, he was, people forget, he was on top of the world when he took the Batman role. You know, he had just won Best Picture for Argo. He won the DGA Directors Guild of America Award. And he was getting ready to direct his next movie. And he got a call to star in a David Fincher movie, Gone Girl. And he was like, okay, uh, you know, I can't pass up the opportunity to work with David Fincher. I'll go and do that. And then got offered to do Batman. And he says he did Batman so we could, you know, for his kids, something to do with his kids. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if his kids have seen uh, Batman because Batman versus Superman is not a super kid-friendly movie. Um, but he looked miserable in Justice League. And clearly he has other things he wants to do. We've reported on a number of projects that he's had in development to direct, um, let alone star in, uh, you know, he's working with George Clooney right now. He's starring in a movie for George Clooney. Um, I think he's lining up his next directorial effort. You know, let uh, that guy is an Oscar for screenwriting. Let him like, let him continue expanding as an artist, like to, to say like, Oh, we want him to come back and be Batman again. And people pointed to, him shooting the new scene for Snyder cut is evidence that he would do it. I was like, to me, that was just more of like, he's a nice guy and he, you know, is friendly with Zack Snyder and did his friend a favor. And that would be like a nice thing to do. Show up, uh, do a day of shooting um, 
for the Snyder Cut movie. And as a fellow filmmaker, I'm sure it was, uh, you know, important to him to see Zach's vision come come to fruition. But I've seen no signs that Ben Affleck wants to like go and be Batman full time now. Yeah. And it's also exhausting to be Batman all the time. Yes. It's exhausting to be any superhero all the time. I was so happy when for a few Jackman after Wolverine was done because <laughs> yeah. he could just, you know, eat, eat a cheeseburger. Yes. He could eat what he wanted and go and make musicals. Yes. Finally live his truth. So, yeah, I, yeah, I just, this notion of like, I need franchises. I need them a certain way. It's like, they're going to keep making franchises, my dude, just, you don't need to keep plugging away at something that's been abandoned. Um, I mean, I will say though, part of me is a little sympathetic because if you're 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, your entire life, Hollywood has fed you blockbusters. Like that has been the thing, you know, spider, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man, X-Men came out in 2000. Spider-Man came out in 2002 uh those two movies really kicked off the current era of superhero movies batman begins in 2005 and we're off to the races uh studios started prioritizing those blockbusters as like their main thing and we've seen the mid-budget drama dwindle and dwindle and dwindle until now it's just you know you can watch mank on netflix if you choose to but no one chose to so like the, well, and, the and, event nature of right. going to the movies and seeing something like that has kind of dwindled so you know that's why I say part of me is sympathetic because if, if you are of that age, I'm sure, you know, you're even growing up on a steady diet of these blockbusters and that Hollywood has told you that that is the most important thing. And so, you know, and not only that, but you also just never even got kids movies. You never even got movies like <laughs> PG films that are just like mid budget, like, like you and I, like we got like the Sandlot and mighty ducks and like, listen, they got super eight. <laughs> <laughs> they got a knockoff spielberg film sweet which i think is also pg-13 so it doesn't yes, it is but i think it you know i think like jj from star trek is what counted for a kid's movie yeah the that's the thing era. like everything is pg-13 there's not really a pg market anymore so you just have to sort of age up or you know age it down however you view it yeah. into you get marvel movies now and that's a yeah. shame because I actually think that there'd still be a market for that. You know, the last PG film I saw that I thought was like, this is great. And it's about a blockbuster scale and it's, but it is like firmly PG is, was the, uh, was Bumblebee, that Transformers spinoff. I saw that. And I like, I immediately called my brother-in-law and like, you know, your son who I think was like five or six or seven at the time. I'm like, this would be great for him. Like, cause I think the Marvel films are a little too mature, but like Bumblebee is pretty simple to understand. You know, I and gonna, I, I thought you were going to say the kid who would be king because I think that's another one that's. I think kid who would no, well, kid who would be king. I recommend it to everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kid king. I was like, I don't care how old you are, just see kid who would be king. But yeah. exactly, like that film is like an endangered species. It's pretty much extinct. Mm -hmm. And so this notion, like we need more of the blockbusters. Like, yeah, I guess I'm sympathetic, but at the same time, I feel like a little miffed. <laughs> well, and, it's just it's just how can we franchise it? Okay, how can how can we include this in our in our theme park somehow? Mm -hmm. How can we make a, you know, now at Warner Brothers there's an edict for all of their DC movies, you have to also come up with an HBO Max spin-off series. So like you also have to build a world big enough to fit a TV show spin-off in it. Whereas, and I think they made direct to video sequels to like the Sandlot and stuff like that. Oh um, yeah, they did, but that was well after. 
Yeah, and it wasn't but part of the like. It wasn't part wasn't of the, the strategy. Bargain. Yeah, that wasn't the bargain that like you know when you make this movie, you also have to think about the larger universe. Yeah, when they made Mighty whatever. Ducks, they no one had Mighty Ducks game changers in mind. No, no, no. But I did eat up those Mighty Ducks sequels. Um, but that was just the you know sequel. And I'm not I'm not saying like the '90s were a heyday for cinema. No, no. You know independence day and like those kind of blockbusters were what i was on a steady diet of but i was also on a steady diet of movies like the fugitive and the firm uh you know the rainmaker like a lot of what, just man, what, what must have been like to grow up just being freely able to watch r-rated films because i did not grow <laughs> up that way i had to sneak phil i had to sneak my r-rated movies I, uh, as long as it didn't have like sex in it, I was okay. So I, I did get caught trying to, trying to rent revenge of the nerds. Uh, uh those, those eighties comedies will get you. They'll, they'll get you. They, they've got the sneaky nudity, nudity in there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I sound like I'm just like an old fogey saying it was back in my day. It was better, but I'm trying to under, like, I, I can kind of sympathize with, again, if you're a teenager or if you're in your early twenties, for the majority of your life, Hollywood has told you these are the most important movies. They're all right. I don't, I, true, but I also feel like at some point it's contingent on the viewer to be like your appreciation doesn't need to be limited by what is a, a, the, the biggest blockbusters you're going to receive. I mean, yeah. at some point it's contingent on the individual to be like, I'm going to pick up the AFI 100 years, 100 films list and make my way through it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to... I'm going to find a copy of sight and sound. I'm going to learn about Kaye du cinema. I'm going to learn, you know, there's a big world out there and it, it's just, it's weird sort of, and I, I mean, this has been remarked on at length, but the notion that the internet promised to, you know, expand our horizons and instead it's just cloistering them further. Yeah. So the notion of like f- film appreciation only extends to the biggest superhero franchise. And look, I, I think these superhero, I, I like superhero movies. I'm not, I'm not above them. Yeah. I, I enjoy watching them, but I also just feel like, I think it'd be better for, if you're going to campaign for something, campaign for like an campaign for like an individual campaign for a filmmaker campaign mm-hmm. for a voice Campaigning for a franchise, it's just so empty, I guess, you know, it's because also it's not like, oh, how will this story continue? How will the story of the Justice League continue? I don't know. There are decades of comic books that will that will (laughs) offer that to you. It's not like the story has never been told. It just isn't being told in the exact medium you want it in. Yeah. So I would just say it's more it's far more interesting to sort of be like, let me, you know, champion a filmmaker who is really exciting and I want to see what they do next rather than here's a studio product, sell me the next thing. I I am somewhat shocked that there is no movement to continue the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy into <laughs> like a fourth film. You know, it's funny. Like, I think Christopher, Christopher Nolan... Well, no, I think it's funny because I think Christopher Nolan kind of achieves that escape velocity through his own branding. Like he is the filmmaker that's like, well, whatever he wants to do, I'm there for it. Like he's the brand. He's the brand that in a way, weird way is bigger than Batman. Also, I think Christian Bale is like, if I keep losing and gaining weight that way, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, he was pretty over it by the end of that franchise. Yeah. Also, I think the Dark Knight Rises kind of left a sour taste in people's mouth. Yes. Yeah. It was an ending, but we were like, okay, yeah, I'm good. (laughs) I'm okay. (laughs) We're good. (laughs) We're good here. We're fine. So, 
Yeah, I guess and the the monsters restore the monster first. I have no idea what to make of that because you just. I mean, I guess it's just it's just so weird these sort of swings, and I kind of can't help but wonder like if if there hadn't been a pandemic, how Godzilla versus Kong would have performed because Godzilla King of the Monsters was not a hit. No, and so were people just like hard up for it? Is it the movie itself? I don't know. I read this Matt Zoller cites piece about how you know this is just a great franchise and I didn't really agree with his conclusions because I just feel like it's kind of a stretch to sort of see any depth in this very sort of brand, what it, what it feels like essentially a branding exercise, but what have you know, you do you. Um, but at that point, I mean, it's not even advocating for a filmmaker's vision or even a cohesive story because story points are dropped throughout from film to film in that entire mm-hmm. franchise. Nothing really co- coheres. You know, Godzilla versus Kong introduces like the hollow earth. I guess there's some like mythology teases, but there's no like well, promise I, to tell further. I mean, it's so weird. Like Monarch is built up at this really important organization in the first two Godzilla movies. And then Godzilla versus Kong, it's nothing. Yeah. Does it, it barely exists. Yeah. It doesn't do like who knows what it's there for, but it doesn't matter in the plot. So it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. In terms of a cohesive story. And maybe but, it's just social media. I mean, maybe if yeah. Twitter was around when John Carter came out, there would be a whole, you know, movement. Because I mean, and, and it was, but we, but there wasn't that like fan movement kind of thing. Yeah. So so I don't know. And, it's strange. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. it's it's an odd thing. Well, with that, let's let's move on to to recently watched. Uh, Adam, what have you seen lately that you want to talk about? Uh, I will talk about a genuine cult film uh, in more ways than one, which is a movie called The Empty Man, which, uh, gosh, long history. It it was a 20th century Fox film that kind of got abandoned and uh, got caught up in the sale to Disney. They didn't like fully finish the movie. They needed to come back and do some reshoots and they had to wait for a while Um and like was essentially dumped by Disney through 20th century studios last fall. Um, but kind of quickly gained a bit of a cult following largely on Letterboxd, honestly, um, with a lot of people checking it out and saying this movie is worth seeing. And so I decided to rent it uh, and I really liked it. It's so it's from writer director David Pryor. And he's the director behind, if you've watched any of the making of documentaries on Fincher Blu-rays, so the social network one, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Those are all David Pryor. Um, so he's a phenomenal documentary filmmaker in terms of capture, capturing how a movie is made. Um, and The Empty Man is, you know, it was mismarketed as well. So it was marketed like a Slenderman type, uh, you know, there's a monster and he's knocking kids off, which is absolutely not what the movie is at all. Um, if I had to sum it up quickly, I would say it's kind of like The Ritual, the Rafe Spall Netflix movie, plus Hereditary times like a bit of like a 90s crime thriller. Uh, and basically the the setup, so it opens with a fantastic 20 minute prologue uh, that takes place in Bhutan in 1995 that kind of sets the stage for what's going on. Um, but it doesn't really come full circle to that until later on in the film. But the bulk of the movie follows stars James Badgedale as an ex-cop who is investigating a missing girl and discovers this secret cult uh, of the empty man. And, you know, there's a whole like boogeyman story of like, if you blow on a bottle on a bridge and think about the empty man, he'll come for you. Um, but it delves deeper and deeper and it, 
it's compelling throughout and I found it really chilling and creepy throughout. It's clear that this guy is, uh, you know, a close friend of David Fincher's because there's definitely a seven vibe throughout the film um, and how it's put together aesthetically. It's a little long, it's a little shaggy and there are a lot of really um, high-minded ideas in it. I was reading some interview. It's, it's the kind of film that after it ends, you'll go down like a rabbit hole at the end looking at Reddit threads and interviews with the director to figure out you know exactly what it all means and the director laid you know a ton of easter eggs about philosophy and all kinds of things throughout the film um and really wanted it to be uh somewhat ambiguous and kind of up to interpretation but he has you know his own interpretations of what it all means and what is actually happening going on um so you know to that end uh, 20th century fox tested it and it tested horribly and they recut it as like a 90 minute slender man type thriller and it tested even worse so that's why they just kind of dumped it um it's available to rent right now it's not streaming anywhere but it's like six dollars yeah it's like six bucks and it's well worth it i would say i would be very curious to hear your thoughts on it because i you know, i might watch it this weekend sir you don't yeah, know well that's that's what i did last week and i was like i'm gonna watch the empty man and you um, know what if i watch it this weekend maybe that'll just be our next episode talking yeah, about the empty man talking about the empty man a movie that made four million dollars at the box office. i'm excited yeah Marin island's in it uh steven roots in it a little bit um but yeah, I don't know. It's it's a curious one. And I think that director David Pryor is currently working with David Fincher on um, a Netflix docuseries about film appreciation. Um, so that'll be interesting. But uh, yeah, it just feels like, you know, it's a guy who's been working in Hollywood for a long time doing documentaries and it gets his one shot to make a feature film. And he just like puts all of these big ideas in it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't all work. I don't think it all comes together. And I'm not entirely sure what it all means, honestly, uh, if I'm being honest. Um, but it's 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 fascinating and compelling enough through and through. So. All right, cool. Um, I watched this weekend. I watched Lady Snowblood, which is on HBO Max, and I knew Lady Snowblood, which came out, I believe, in 1972. Uh, I knew it was an influence on Kill Bill. I did not know how heavily an influence it was on Kill Bill. <laughs> the plot is, is that this girl has been basically raised to be an assassin to take revenge for the people that murdered her father, raped her mother and killed her brother. Um, and so she's just training all of her life to be an assassin to, to kill these four people. And she has a list of these four people that need to die <laughs> in a really bloody fashion. Uh, it takes place in Meiji era Japan. So that's late. The film mostly takes place in the early 20th century. Um, and the idea of the sort of westernizing uh, Japan is happening, but it's just a very cool, very pulpy film uh, that's super entertaining to watch. I mean, it's one of those films where, you know, someone gets stabbed with a sword and like, 50 gallons of blood comes out of them. It's just, it's that kind of movie, but it's the blood, it's the blood that sort of looks like red paint, which makes it even more it just stylish. Sounds like Kill Bill. I gotta be honest with you. It does. <laughs> it is kind of like Kill Bill, but like, that's the thing about Tarantino. He's not just going to remake Lady Snowblood. What he'll take is he'll take it and he'll remix it into something yeah. else. Um, but it's so much fun. I had, I was just really done. It's gorgeous to look at. It's very stylish. Uh, there's a sequel that I haven't seen yet but I now am going to, uh, but I was just very impressed with it. Uh, I, a friend had seen it and recommended it. And I was like, you know, I should probably get around to watching this. And it's only like 97 minutes. 
I, I had a blast with it. It's just very entertaining. It's just a bloody good time. Um, but it's not as long as Kill Bill. So <laughs> has that going for it. Um, but yeah, it's just a really cool film. Um, if you if if you like something pulpy and stylish uh, that you that you may not have seen, Lady Snowblood, check it out. Interesting. Uh, all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs> <laughs>